All right, tonight I have, of the Six Degrees of John Keel podcast, Barbara Fisher. Of the Creative Weirdos podcast, Todd Purse. And my new buddy, Druid Dazos Crowsong. And I am your bearded weirdo, Jason from the Esoteric Book Club. So tonight, we basically are going to have a topic discussion, a roundtable discussion about something we were talking about in our private chats, and that is mental health in the paranormal field. And we all have noticed that in some way, our mental health has impacted how we interact with this whole phenomena. Would anybody like to jump in? I mean, yeah. So I, as far as, uh, you know, mental health and the paranormal and my interaction with it all, it definitely was a big point uh, to step back. I have lots of anxiety problems and stuff. And the way I got back into weird stuff, besides the kind of classic story of finding things through the library and weird TV shows growing up, but I got back into it because I was about to have kids. I was about to have my first kid and I got real big waves of anxiety going on and just big issues sitting with that, you know, all the unknowns of becoming a a dad or a parent for the first time. And I slowly started finding myself uh, getting back into some of the, I guess, more spiritual or esoteric teachings that I was really into via like Ram Dass and Terrence McKenna. And that all slowly slipped back into the paranormal. And I realized that I was kind of searching for something to help me sit more comfortably in that big mystery in that big like unknown and the paranormal kind of was a fun way to enter that and kind of took the edge off of it a little bit so I kind of got back into it through handling uh anxiety about a ginormous life change of becoming a parent yeah I imagine that would be kind of stress inducing wouldn't it yeah. And I didn't really have that framing for it. Like, I didn't know why I was going back to those paths uh, until much later. It's probably like three years after I had a kid and I had become part of this community and we gotten way more involved besides just listening and consuming the stuff, but becoming more of an uh, active, I guess, member of the weirdo community. And that's when I was like, oh, I was just trying to figure out how to handle these like giant life questions and kind of get a uh, grasp on how to sit in these big uh, unknowns. And that it was all retrospective. Like, I feel like I didn't have any clue what I was fumbling towards when it was happening, if that makes sense. Now, in hindsight, knowing why you started looking back into it, does that seem to help you going forward? Yeah, totally. Because I think that it allowed me to realize that it doesn't matter where the helpful stuff comes from. Like a lot of the times people will shy away from taking roots that might be very helpful or beneficial for them because it doesn't come from an official channel like a therapist or somebody that's or a more trusted um, personal connection like a friend or a family member. It came from Terrence McKenna, this weirdo talking about mushrooms and these crazy trips and this communication and how the imagination is the most important thing. And it went from that to me being like, oh, he's also talking about aliens all the time and getting into John Keel and then being like, oh, yeah, Robert Anton Wilson and starting reading Robert Anton and all these things where it's like you can pull these little 
I guess, nuggets from a lot of places that people wouldn't think you would find those kind of anxiety reducing things. And it might not be that way for everybody. That's the other thing that I think is really important is that I found my way there and it's helped me a lot with kind of continuing that uh, management of living in the unknown. But I, I mean, it definitely wouldn't work that way for everybody, I feel like. Barbara? I have uh, sort of a PTSD is, is what it's officially called um, from growing up in a, an unsafe household. We'll put it that way. Both of my parents were alcoholics in various functional states of alcoholicdom. You know, I mean, it's, it's not like the house caught fire and nobody noticed or anything like that, but I was pretty consistently put into unsafe situations and uh, I basically went from that to marrying my high school sweetheart, who was also an alcoholic and had mental illness problems. My mom had lots of mental illness problems. It was kind of telling, though, that his were seen as less bad than my mother's. So, you know, I just married him because he, he seemed like a more normal person. I found out later that that wasn't the case, but I do have issues with some PTSD triggers. Not great with violence, uh, not great with, you know, feeling like I'm being followed or stalked or anything like that, because that has happened and it's really crappy. So I, I, learned as a kid how to dissociate my mind from my body just kind of like putting it over over to the left a little bit actually that's my right hand isn't it yeah to the left I have left right dyslexia too um but just putting my consciousness over there and uh that is a coping mechanism just like PTSD really is a coping mechanism, it isn't really a mental illness. It is a coping mechanism or a survival mechanism that becomes dysfunctional. So dissociation is the same thing. But what I found was when I disconnected from my body, there was all of these other things that I started noticing. And that's when I started, you know, seeing things. And I was young enough that I didn't have any concept of what a hallucination would be. B besides, it interacted with me and my cat could see them. I could see the cat interact with those things. So I was pretty sure that that was just some other part of reality. So one could say that my mental health has definitely pushed me toward, quote unquote, the paranormal, although I'm pretty sure it's actually normal. But not everybody can disconnect that easily and walk right into it. So I don't know. I hear so many stories from people that have seen and experienced things that I'm like, this is pretty normal. So and I, I actually... When I started my podcast, I, I came out to my therapist as being, you know, a weirdo. And she she was like, well, I kind of had a feeling, you know, I looked at your art 
And so are you painting and drawing things that you see? And I went, yeah, yeah pretty much. Yeah. I said, so am I crazy? You know, cause I'm going to start this podcast and I don't want to like, you know, be spreading crazy stuff to people and harming them. And she goes, no, I actually think you're pretty normal. <laughs> so start that podcast with my blessing. So that's kind of my sort of entry into this. Is it normal? Is it paranormal? Is it mental health? Is it something else? So do you see these things all the time or is it something that you consciously have to shift your focus in order to see them? It depends. If they want to be seen, sometimes it doesn't matter what I want to do. I will see them. Sometimes it just happens. Like the other night I, you know, got up to go to the bathroom and I sat down and looked over and there was something behind the door that was sort of coalescing into a face. And I was like, really, guy? Really? While I'm in here? <laughs> what? No, that's not appropriate. Go. <laughs> you know? Go. And uh, it, it sort of crept backwards into the, into the gloom behind the door. I was just like, what? You know, but it wasn't a, a thing that I was afraid of. It didn't seem, it didn't have that vibe. So I just was kind of like, oh, whatever, rude guy, and went back to bed. Um, sometimes, yeah, I have to work to see things. Sometimes it starts and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a migraine because I'll get, you know, mm. the, the sparkles. Um, but sometimes it's not a migraine or it's what's called the aura without the migraine. But sometimes it coalesces into things. And then there are the times that I'm with someone else and, and they see it too. And I just go, yeah, well, okay. Guess we're both seeing it. All right. That's all right then. So no, it's not every day. Um, I'd have a hell of a time getting a job if it was. I don't want to hire her. <laughs> she sees crap. She's staring off into the corner talking to something that's not there. Yeah. I mean, but yeah, some, some of the most solid things I saw was while I was working at a job and I was, well, why is there a little guy there? I, okay. I'm going to take the trash out. This uh, just y'all, I don't know what that is, but not playing with it. Dazos, you're up. So uh, my journey to the paranormal has been uh, a pretty interesting one because, um, my um uh, my path into druidry uh sort of came out of my sobriety experience and trying to actually let me back up a bit my background is i have ptsd uh largely from religious trauma and abuse that uh went on through early uh childhood into late teens <clears throat> and really a a structure i didn't get out of until my mid 20s and um, so that led me through uh, an experience with addiction and then recovery and then really trying to rebuild um, some sort of spiritual path for myself. I had a lot of difficulty with that uh, initially because um, I just I had a lot of anxiety. I had a lot of. I felt stupid a lot about, you know, just believing in anything for a while. 
Aaron Deese is my best friend and he, he and I were talking and I told him about getting into Druidry and everything. And he told me about this group that he had recently been hanging out with in, uh, on an app called Clubhouse and it's uh, CryptoCasters um, was the room on Clubhouse that he invited me to. And it was really neat because they were just every... I think it was Thursdays at the time that everybody was getting together and people would just get on and share whatever stories they uh, had heard recently in the news or sometimes people who had had their own experiences would come on and talk. For a while, it's really good that I wasn't on a mic or anything because I'm sitting listening to these stories and kind of dying of secondhand embarrassment on behalf of the person speaking. And, you know, it's, it's really good that nobody could hear my reactions to these things because nobody else was reacting the way I was because it was, you know, it was a safe space for people to come with their, their weird stories about the light that they saw while they were checking the mail or whatever and, and be heard and, and just have a bunch of people go, wow, that's intense. How did that make you feel? And, you know, when, when you get through all of the woo or the crypto or the meta or the para, it's stories. It's a bunch of people telling stories and, and, and hearing stories and just kind of like creating a space for that to happen. And watching that unfold every week really kind of gave me uh, an ability to engage with the, the, spiritual experiences that I was having a bit more, it, it, it kind of allowed me to allow myself to have those experiences. That's awesome. Hey, I, I want, do you mind if I jump in real quick, Jason, and ask a question? Yeah, so I, you brought up uh, the path of recovery, and I was just talking to my brother who went through a, a similar thing, and he, um, I think he's what, five years clean now and went through AA and we were talking about the importance of that finding the higher power and it got me thinking about how the paranormal is a way that like you can kind of relate to that higher power without some of those context words and it made me think of my friend like or some of those words that have weird contexts like god and religion and things like that right, right? and I was talking to my buddy who also went through uh, recovery, but couldn't click with the AA for a long time because of the giving it up to a higher power type thing. He had a lot of trouble with that. And what got him past that point was actually the the temptations made for a TV movie that was on VH1 back in the 90s, uh, early 2000s. Are you familiar with this at all, anybody? I loved these movies. These temptations were one of my favorite, you know, soul acts, and all those VH1 movies were just so cheesy and amazing. But there's this one part where Blue, who's one of the main temptations, he's at a doctor's office, and the doctor's telling him he's never going to dance again. He has to stop touring. He can't do this anymore. He's destroying himself physically. And Blue looks at the doctor and just says have you ever felt what it, what it feels like to be a part of something bigger than yourself and that was what did it for my dude like that was the moment where he was like oh Otis Redding can be my higher power like the temptations like Chuck Berry the Ramones like rock and roll can be the thing it doesn't have to be a religious structure and I think the paranormal can play that same role for people that might have some weird hang-ups about religions or religious uh, trauma and things like that absolutely the, the only pushback I would have against that is that it is also very likely for that to turn into conspiracy 
especially mm. at that stage in recovery. You know, ultimately, there's always stuff to look out for. So that's just sure, one. sure. Yeah, I mean, hey, hey, Otis Redding and uh, and Chuck Berry probably aren't the best moral compasses either, as far as. Uh, <laughs> as but but um but I, I yeah no I, I and I have not been through I've uh, luckily did not get bit with that bug and have not been through it myself. But totally think there's there's plenty to be cautious about that. That's a great point, Jason. Well, I guess that means it's my turn. <laughs> so I've always just been a weirdo my entire life, but for a long time, I really just put down spirituality and paranormal and all of that. I put it aside and I tried to live like a normal last person. It was miserable. And then in 2016, when I felt like I was at the height of happiness, like everything was going right for me. Um, the girl that I was seeing at the time took her own life and that just threw me in a complete downward spiral. And then less than a year later, I got laid off from my job out of nowhere. I was completely blindsided by this, which means I also had no access to healthcare, which at the time was providing me with medication for PTSD. But when I got laid off, I realized something very important. And that was that I didn't care. Because the medication I was taking had so completely numbed my emotions that being laid off from a job that I expected to work at until I retired didn't affect me at all. So from that point on, I started to try to re-examine and regain some sort of footing on a spiritual path. And at the time, I remember that I really hadn't found anything that worked for me. The closest thing I had found was some of the Taoist philosophies, but a lot of their practical methods I didn't necessarily want to follow. But it was the animism that really stuck with me. And that's when I started to discover Druidry. And I discovered that Druidry is about as varied a practice as you can get. I was actually talking to Dazos about this. There's one branch that focuses more on magic. There's one that focuses on research and one that focuses on philosophy or service or things like that. You know, it was leadership. So I started to kind of just use that as a template to form basically my own belief system following a Druid framework and Druid philosophy. So that is really what brought me back into, for the lack of a better term, into the regular everyday world. And it led me to becoming ordained, uh, which is actually something I did to honor my late girlfriend because one of her big struggles was with being bisexual. And I don't want to go too much more into that because it's not my story to tell, but it was something she and I had discussed and that I wanted to make things easier for people like her and people in that community to get married. Mm -hmm. And it's something I was willing to do. So I just went ahead and got ordained and started performing marriage ceremonies. 
So I'm not really sure where I'm going with that, but that is it's just, it's a big step that I took in healing from the PTSD that I was dealing with from that whole situation. Wow. That's a, that's really tough, Jason. That's impressive that you could even take that step. I mean, that's really tough story, but I'm, I'm glad that you found your way there. And I, how long did it take for you to become ordained? How big of a process is that? It is shockingly fast. <laughs> I went online to the Universal Life Church. I filled out the paperwork. Uh, the longest yep. thing was to have it mailed to me. Yes. Okay. I have heard of that one. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I got ordained through there and then I got certified through the state. And that took just as long as whatever it takes the mail to go from one place to another. Yeah. Works the same way in Ohio. Yeah, that's when I found out like West Virginia is pretty nice because you can be certified by the state and not have to worry about county to county basis. <laughs> Pennsylvania, on the other hand, it's yep. by county. Oh, wow. Yeah. So the one county I did perform a wedding in, I got real lucky. They were just like, oh, are you nationally certified? Yeah, then you're fine. Didn't have to do anything extra for that. Now you see why I asked you about uh, trigger warnings before we even started uh, recording. Yeah. Absolutely. So it seems like three out of the four of us are dealing with PTSD in some form. It, it's, uh, I always feel, feel funny saying that to like someone from the general public because my, uh, a lot of people think the, oh, well, then, then you were in the army. You know, you served mm -hmm. in Iraq. And I'm like, no, no, I did not. And they're like, well, and I'm like, okay, so it doesn't have to be war that does it. Whatever it is, it just has to be sufficiently traumatic that your brain decides to go into overdrive and your adrenal system goes into overdrive and is then going to protect you forever and ever mm -hmm. by making you anxious and wanting to run away from everything and, and giving you night terrors and all of these things. I'm like, you know, PTSD, when you see it in media is almost always a wartime thing. Like, it, mm -hmm. and I think veterans are a very distinct branch of our PTSD family and the way that they react and the, the things that heal them are not necessarily what heals other people. But I, I will say I've never had a, an ex soldier say to me that I didn't have PTSD because I wasn't a soldier. They're like, Oh yeah, no, <laughs> <laughs> you can have it for other reasons. And hey, you can go to war and already have it. Yeah. And that's a really sad case. And that's a really messed up case. I feel like our society may be a bit more accepting of military service-based PTSD because it's something that is more publicized. It's more in the limelight. Mm -hmm. It's something people understand. But if you say, no, it's PTSD from say like a single event or from long-term abuse mm -hmm. that's more nebulous so yeah. it's like especially if you're not able and willing to talk about what caused it 
Yes. Yes. The expansion of those terms, I feel like, are really is really fascinating and useful because forever they didn't even have PTSD to describe what happened in war or like, you know, that was a, a relatively modern term for that. Right. Like that was not my I guess like we had like shell shock. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. Totally. So like. Yeah, those the way those terms become a little bit more, um, I, I guess, positive for lack of a better word, like you know, post traumatic stress disorder. Uh, PTSD is way more of an acceptable term than shell shock, or it's going to uh, do better things for you mentally. You know, it's going to sound a little bit more, I guess, uh, I don't want to say legitimate, but it has an air of something that is almost medical that can be addressed. Mm-hmm. And like the way we name these things, I think, is really important, and the progression of the way we name these things. I came up with a lot more experience with learning disabilities than anything else as far as official diagnoses and uh, the way that they diagnose and name learning disabilities has even changed a lot from mm-hmm. you know my kids now. They stopped using a lot of the words like disorder or defect and things like that. And I think that goes a long way with the way we talk mm-hmm. to ourselves and everything. And I, I don't know. I, it's interesting to me to think about all of those people that were dealing with PTSD and didn't have a name for it and what the what that next iteration of it's going to be like how it's going those terms are going to keep expanding and like it makes me think about the idea of like uh you know generational trauma that gets passed down and how much more legitimate that's being looked at now and how it's being scientifically backed up so like PTSD might not even be from a lifetime that we've lived. It could be from, you know, generations Mm -hmm. ago in certain ways. So the more these terms get bigger and more open, I feel like the more people can fall into them and find the usefulness that they provide. Yeah, I think that's a good point. One of the that's part of why when I talk with people about PTSD, I I, yes, post-traumatic stress disorder disorder is in the name. That I still, and and I have this from several therapists, that really what's going on is your ability to cope with fear, anxiety, and the things that, that happen to you has just gone too far. Like you, you are no longer in the situation that harmed you but your body and your your brain don't really know that anymore. And so that's one of the things that I like to to tell people. It's like now it, you just basically have an overactive you know uh, sense of 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 safety. You know, the you, your brain just really wants everything around to be safe. And of course the the world isn't that way, right? Yeah, <laughs> but you you have to you have to bring that uh, adrenal system into like line so that it's not reacting to everything because everything isn't actually dangerous. So it, it's a process. But 
I think it helps if people don't feel like they're defective in some way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like even on the learning side, they don't cut like my, my son has a few different uh, paths and a few different people he works with. And some people use learning different differences. And I like that mm-hmm. one the best. Some people use learning challenges and that one still has a little bit of a negative connotation, mm-hmm. like, cha- but like, I think using those terms and like you said, not only using those terms, but describing it the way you did attention deficit disorders. When I use the same thing that they're they don't have a attention disorder their attention is filtered differently they utilize attention differently mm-hmm. and that doesn't mean it's bad it's just disordered in context to our current society and the way that we run things and that's a lot of like when we say there's these uh you know whether it's a challenge or a difference or a disorder or whatever word it is a lot of the times it just means that the thing's not functioning in the way that the uh, you know general public functions. It doesn't really, it shouldn't be looked mm-hmm. at as a negative a lot of the times. And I find the more that I've, with my podcast, got to talk to a lot of artists and stuff, it's uh, universal almost that, you know, creative people see the world differently. And a lot of the times at a young age that gets labeled as a learning disorder or as a, you know, mental disorder or things like that. And it's just that they're experiencing everything a little bit different than the people that are, you know, around them. And that can really affect the way people grow up and see the world. Yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. This is very similar to a conversation I was having with Vuk earlier he, I don't even know why he brought this up. He just messaged me and he's like, you know, learning disabilities and things that are labeled as disorders and things like that may not actually be disabilities or disorders. It's just that it's a varied way to interact with the world. And it's conflicting with this socially constructed agreement that this is the one way we're supposed to behave and interact with society. Mm-hmm. And that people don't all fit in within that constructed narrative that we have for our society. So they're labeled as having a disorder when it's not a disorder. It's just how they interact. Even when we're, you know, using prettied up language and everything, the way that we treat certain things really matters because, you know, um, yeah. a lot of neurodivergent kids are put through uh, ABA therapy. And I know that there's a lot of controversy over whether or not that's any good for them. And I'm kind of on the side of probably not, because I mean, if you've got a kid lining up their toys in a straight line and the the therapist is going, oh, you need to disrupt that behavior. uh, Why? You know, just because a kid is playing differently from what a neurotypical kid plays doesn't mean that that child needs to be brought into line. I don't care if you call it a disability or a difference or anything, maybe just foster a way for that kid to function within that framework instead of, you know, and there's a lot of, you know, situations where we're, we're using, you know, what sounds like more progressive speak around things, but we're still actively doing harm to neurodivergent kids, to, um, you know, well, even like to queer kids and and other, you know, getting way off, Mm -hmm. you know, into other just ways in which people don't conform um, that don't really actively harm anybody or anything, but still get conditioned out. You know, Uh, one thing that I was thinking of, um, I was born left-handed. That was actually Mm. um, through physical punishment and yelling and, you know, not 
not even good parenting by modern standards. That was conditioned out of me until I was right-handed with really poor penmanship, and I still am. But, you know, I mean, there, there are so many things that kids face that are just like that, that aren't even really thought of as being abusive. But, you know, would you smack an adult for writing left-handed because that displeased you? You know, I mean, if you were at the bank and the person at the, at the window next to you was writing left-handed, who in their right mind would feel comfortable physically disciplining somebody for that? But we do it kids yeah. thousands of times over, thousands of times a day, you know? And the reason for it is so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you're left-handed. That means you're evil. Yeah, no, it was, I mean, in my case, when I say religious abuse, those are the kind of things that I'm, I'm talking about. You know, that mm-hmm. was equated to being of Satan. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, oh. the left-hand path in paganism is, you know, the satanic path or the path of however you, you want to talk about it. But yeah, um, sinister. Mm-hmm. That word comes, it, it was a description of the left-handedness. Sinister. They were, yeah. they were sinister. Um, my, my father and his sister and his other sister were born left-handed. And his father would let them write right left-handed, but they had to eat right-handed. Because he didn't like the elbows sticking out into other people <laughs> at the table. Oh my gosh. So it was always weird to me when I was little and I realized there was such a thing as handedness, you know, because at first you don't really, yeah, hey, people eat with forks. That's what you do. And my dad was eating with his right hand, but he wrote with his left hand and drew with his left hand. And I was like, and he said, oh, my dad didn't like it. Papa didn't like it. So, you know, he'd slap our hands. And so we learned not to eat that way. And I'm like, okay, that's not dysfunctional or anything. I mean, that's... Totally. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sounds like they needed a bigger table. I know, right? <laughs> I, that was probably part of the problem is they had a small kitchen. I think you really hit something, uh, Dasos, when you said that people are using that more progressive language but not leading by example or by action a lot of the times. Because as a parent, I find myself in that situation like constantly where I'm like, you know, I'm saying one thing to the kid and being like, oh, yeah, I could get better at that myself by a whole lot. And like not not always making that connection that the way that you behave uh, trumps whatever you're saying. And I think that's a really important point. But I do think even with that point made, the language does lead the rest of it. I feel like just using the language isn't enough, but it is this, the first step that's going to drag the rest of it forward, hopefully, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Like, I, I think that the words we use and the, the stories we tell ourselves are super important. So if we can start there and at least kind of craft that a little bit, then the rest of it will follow and maybe not as fast as we would like it to. But, you know, it, it hopefully will help help it along. Language and and terms that we use are funny, too, because there's sometimes where a more modern term seems to sanitize the situation. 
Mm-hmm. So like PTSD is great, but you know, it seems like to me stress doesn't fully encompass what's going on. No. And shell shock is too narrow focused. Right. Mm-hmm. So we're still we've got a term that's more accepted, but it still doesn't really convey what we're trying to say. Conversely, there are more modern terms for certain things that, you know, it's just a different word. It's still being used in the same way, and it still has that negative connotation with it that doesn't really help anything. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm old enough to remember when um, kids with what were called learning disabilities at the time, and were it was just a blanket term, like, you know, everybody who didn't do everything just exactly so went over there, you know, if you were a little bit slow, you went there. If you couldn't read, you went there. If you had dyslexia, you went there. And they had their own separate, separate classroom. And there was no way for any of the kids to learn how to treat people who had different wiring in their brain, essentially, Mm -hmm. how we were supposed to treat them. We did not learn anything that was useful. Um, and I look at it now and I'm just like, oh my God, they still use the R word. You know, they still would say that word. (laughs) And, and, you know, of course, by the time I, I got older, it was, I don't say that, you know, but you're still thinking it, Mm -hmm. you know, and, Mm -hmm. and it was still seen as kind of okay you know i mean i did grow up in west virginia and and as i said you know i was born in 1965 and it was still the 1950s you know they they hadn't let go of that Mm -hmm. you know women were still supposed to be staying home raising their children and looking like donna reed and all that and and you know everything was just a little bit socially slower and so you know there are things that i grew up seeing and and my husband is just like, what? Because I'm only three years older than him. And he's like, it sounds like you grew up in, you know, like the 1950s. And I went, well, yeah, yeah I did, kind of. <laughs> but yeah, that and that was terrible. That was terrible that those kids didn't, we didn't get socialized with them. And they didn't get socialized with us. Yeah. And so as they grew up, I'm sitting here going, what happened to those kids? What, 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 where, where did those kids end up? What's happening? That's kind of a scary thought. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. It's sad. It's very, it's one of those things that I think um, time and perspective does a lot on. And it's the type of thing that like, I'm actually, that brings up a great question, Barbara, like what happened to those kids now and what if they could go back and redo it, right, and be integrated with that class and be a part of it. Because I, I was in the remedial classes and I was in the, like, I, I had, even in high school, I actually got really lucky in high school. They gave me, so the first couple of years, I have, like, numeric dyslexia, spatial disorder, and regular dyslexia. So I kind of yeah, got a whole yeah. whole boatload of stuff going on with, re- with reading and learning and whatnot. And uh, luckily, I... Uh, came from the 
point of privilege to go to a Catholic school, go to a private school. And the way they handled it was once I got to high school, they realized I really liked art and they just gave me a bunch of art classes. They're like, okay, you're not going to get past algebra. Like you're going to, you're going to take two years of algebra and then you're going to take two years of what they called basic math, which was, here's how you fill out a checkbook. Here's how you balance Mm -hmm. your, your, you know, very practical things that really probably helped me a lot in the long run, but they gave me that. And then when it came time to hit the credits, they would give me extra, like I ran my uh, school's um, artistic and uh, what's called literary magazine for two years. And then I did the yearbook design and stuff like that. So they took me out of Spanish class. They're like, don't worry about foreign language. We'll credit you that if you do the yearbook design and, and run that. So like I got very lucky in that they kind of manipulated my education around that. And I think back to the situation you were just describing and mm-hmm. how like, that's obviously the exact opposite of like, they're not trying to be creative in the way to work with these people. And what does happen to those people and how do they integrate into the rest of the, into the rest of society after they started out in a very secluded area and like essentially being told that they can't do it. But it also made me think of Jason, what you were talking about with book a little bit ago and like, you know, essentially these things don't function because of the way society set up. And when you, backtrack that it all comes back down to commerce and and economics and 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 that's one of the things that's super interesting to me is how economics affects mental health and mental well-being and i think today we're not too far off from a place where everybody's going to have some sort of uh, challenge mentally because of the way that commerce and the economy is being run. And I think Mm -hmm. that what you're describing, Barbara, was like the beginning of not the beginning, but kind of like where where a big turning point happened. And even Mm -hmm. as like Das House was saying, like we're getting more progressive and like my situation was great. They really helped me out, but it's still not fixing the underlying problem is that we're all being pushed through a system that's supposed to end with you come out and you become a uh, productive member of society, whatever that means. Or, you know, we're, we're still playing the game and the big system that is causing all of these problems. I was thinking like half of my job, half of how I make my money is off of interacting with my phone. And like, that is probably the worst thing for mental health right now because the essentially the part that I'm not doing drawings when I'm selling the stuff, it's all through the phone. It's all through mm. Instagram and like even through the coffee company, a big part of what I do for them is run their Instagram and run their so like I am financially tied to this thing that is proven to have these like, you know, very uh, negative health effects. And again, it all comes back down to economics and having to. So I'm very interested in the tie between economics and mental health and how thinking weirder can help those things, like how changing the narrative. Like if I sat with that narrative that I just explained, I would probably be doing way worse than I am right now. But that's not the narrative I tell myself. I tell myself I'm a full time artist who has to dabble on the phone. But really, I'm on the phone way more than I probably should be because of it. But changing that narrative in my in my mind helps a lot. But yeah, do you guys find that, you know, commerce is a part of what's going on with your mental uh challenges uh yes yeah (laughs) resounding yes (laughs) um i actually just had a conversation with another podcaster uh saba okaile who is a southern fried witch about um you know her the angle that we were talking about was magic and how poverty impacts magic because both of us in our past have uh 
gone through periods of homelessness. And, um, you know, the poverty causes mental health problems. Just, you know, anybody living in poverty is behind the curve on mental health mm-hmm. from the get go. And not only that, but they're also behind the curve on accessing ways out of whatever issue they're in. And um, mm-hmm. so, you know, if, if, if you're in poverty, not only are you more likely dealing with mental illness, but you're less likely to be able to get treatment or adequate treatment or medication if you need it. That's a problem that does not seem to be getting any better anytime soon in this country. I mean, wealth inequality is growing right now. Yeah, that mixed with our, uh, you know, wonderful healthcare system is just perfect, perfect recipe for success. Look at how Congress has (laughs) impacted that, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So do you think that stories of the weird and paranormal, like, how can this be applied? Like, we kind of all said how we got back into it as adults. Like, do you think there is practical things within these stories and mythologies that can be applied to help people in situations where they are struggling a little bit more than than the normal or they're in a, a, a deeper, darker place? Like, to me, one of the things I always get out of these kind of rabbit holes or these uh, different types of looking at the world is the that feeling that you're really small, like the feeling that like what is going on in your life doesn't really matter as much as you think it does. And that's kind of one of the things that I take away from uh, a lot of different stuff that I'm really into. And uh, one of the big, big memories I have growing up is that like first time you see a really big open sky with all the stars and stuff and just being like, oh, this is like the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest I've ever felt in my life. And getting back to that feeling is really helpful to me. And stories of the strange or whether it's like, you know, sigh or uh, ghosts or cryptids, all of those things can kind of make you feel really small in the world again. And that helps me for some reason. Is there anything that you all find that's like a practical help with these uh, different stories or researching the stuff that you do? I feel like the weird allows me to see from outside. So like I'm able to see society, how it's working mechanically as an outsider, but not feel like I have to actively participate while I'm observing. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. But it also, you were talking about how poverty and, uh, lack of opportunity really changes how people think and behave. It also causes people to be more prone to look for alternative solutions. And even if it's something like magic, not to say anything about it, but just in general, like let's say that magic is just spicy psychology. If you're doing a magic ritual that helps you feel like you have a better grasp on what's happening to you, that in itself should be enough to justify doing it. Yes. That's actually what we were getting at is, you know, art and magic are are both something that, um, you know, kind of give voice to the voiceless. Um, they're, they're, They're things that people reach for when they're not feeling empowered and, and can bring a sense of feeling power over your situation, even if you don't have any, you know, it gives you something to do, (laughs) even if nothing else. Um, But it can also be a, 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 you know, just a a vent of, of that struggle. Well, that's another connection that we all, all four of us have. We're all artists. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
that's a great so how how has y'all's creative life helped you through these things because i could do a whole podcast on just like essentially how leaning into making stuff has saved me in like a million different points in my life has that been similar for you all well, Dazos, I see you actively working on something right now. <laughs> I know, I know. I could see him. He's he's got some thread happening. And... Yeah. Well, let's, are you spinning? Yes, I'm, I'm spinning uh, while we're talking. It helps me focus on the conversation that we're having. And I think I noticed you kind of stemming with a rock earlier. Yeah. But uh, yeah, definitely uh, doing anything with my hands, working hands-on stuff, helps me concentrate just kind of helps me work off whatever excess anxiety I think is going on at the moment. Cause I'm always pretty much at a 10 with my anxiety levels. In, in my case, uh, I've always made arts and crafts. Um, I, I took art and, and made art up until like 10th grade. And uh, I'll just, I'll just tell the truth. My mom said that I wasn't good at it at one point, which is something that none of us would say to a child, our child, anybody's child yeah, or to anybody else, an adult. We just wouldn't say it because that's just not a thing you say. No. Um, but she did that and I was like, okay, fine. Art wasn't safe, you know? So I did crafts. Um, now I, I am old enough and cynical enough to go, what's the difference between an art and a craft? <laughs> and the, the technical answer is that crafts create something that is practical and usable. It's usable art, wearable art. That's what it is. That's the difference. And my bitchy answer is men make art and women make crafts. Now, Dessus is, is putting the lie to it right over there, spinning thread out of out of his his fiber. But um, that is kind of a thing. Again, I'm older than y'all, so I, I've seen some I've seen some ugly from the past that thankfully is not the way it is now. We we have a much more kind mm -hmm. and semi-egalitarian society and the counterculture that is we're all a part of is fairly egalitarian so the ugly is not as part of it was when I was a kid but it it's interesting when I do art or craft I I don't even keep them I I, <laughs> I don't even separate them anymore um it does calm the mind it allows me to express inner thoughts or aesthetic feelings in a way that other people can see and understand and so I'm also like Dassos if I if I'm you know in the middle of a conversation with somebody I like to be sewing something or playing with with uh 
plastic clay, plasticine <laughs> clay. I, I, oh. I'm, I suck at actual earth clay. My hands aren't strong enough anymore to do that. So arthritis is like, mm, no girl. <laughs> so I can't do real clay. So I have to do like, you know, Sculpey and that stuff. But it it keeps me in the flow of the conversation. I don't get distracted. Something about the tactile sense of of doing something with my hands keeps it all going in a flow. Cause I go into a flow state when I do art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I can't be in a full flow state when I'm doing art and having a conversation, (laughs) but I can go into a half flow state and the conversation works a lot better. So I think that's, that's been what it's, that's what it does. If I may, I'd like to jump in real quick and just make a point that, you know, Barbara and I both just shared things that help us focus, help us pay attention. And yet, kids, neurotypical and neurodivergent, are taught that paying attention looks like sitting still, eyes on the speaker, hands in your lap, folded, feet on the floor, not moving. And that doesn't work for even many neurotypical kids. So, you Mm -hmm. know, it's so true. Just kind of underlines that point that we were talking about earlier. Yeah. Um, we're super lucky to have Teddy in the only public Montessori school in the area and seeing the difference in the way a Montessori classroom is run versus what I'm used to growing up. I was like, oh, why isn't it all right. this way? This makes so much more sense. Like, Doesn't it? There's no desks. Kids pick up their own projects. They stop working when they want. They, everything's taught through their interests. So, like my kid's super into space. So like all of the stuff, like whether it's math or like it, all of the social, cultural, it's all taught through a lens that he's in interested in and i'm like this just makes so much more sense <laughs> it's just like yeah. and it stinks that it's generally something that costs way more for people like if we didn't get him into the public one he would be in a regular school system because we can't afford i think it was ten thousand dollars for the kindergarten year at the uh, regular montessori and i'm like what is life who is these people that can send their kids to a ten thousand dollar kindergarten <laughs> um it's not me but uh but that's like super because i'm I, I draw note, notes, draw the whole time, mm-hmm. like every conference I have stacks at some point, I'm going to make a zine out of the 60 some interviews that I've done. Cause I have stacks of sketches that I've done during all of them that won't make any sense. Like it's just going to be gobbledygook, but there's some really fun little pictures that I, I just, I love stuff like that, but I'm the same way. And I was yelled at in school all the time. Stop drawing, stop doodling. Mm-hmm. Stop. And I was like, this is how I do it. This is how I pay attention and how I focus. And, and yeah, it's, it's one of those things that I think goes a long way. And I, I think that the the way, whether it's um, used as a coping mechanism or I use drawing a lot as a social engineering mechanism, for lack of a better word. It's like I was the kid that would sit at the table and draw until somebody came over to me and was like, what are you drawing? And that's how I would start the conversation. Mm-hmm. That's how I would kind of like find my place in a community. Like when I first started going to punk shows, I hadn't, I didn't never played an instrument. I never cared about playing music, but I could draw. And I was like, I'll make flyers. I'll do, I can do something. I can print t-shirts. And that's when I learned how to screen print and everything. Cause mm. you, I, there's always been a way to find community through art for me and that's always been a big part of why it's so helpful with the struggles I've had mentally and with the anxiety and special social especially social anxiety that I've dealt with and I think that uh just 
having more access to creativity is really important and we're in a really cool place as far as that goes like as far as just having tools to make stuff and the access to do that and share it i think we're in a really in like i think a lot of what we've talked about there are these uh other sides to or this paradoxical thing going on right like there's everything we just said is very true but there could be another statement that's just as true to most of it and i think this is one of them but i think creativity is such an important part to kind of figuring out who you are and not only that but getting used to tapping into that spiritual side and i'm spiritual as in the non-material not the like religious spiritual but like when you're making stuff you're tapping into the same thing as you are when you're meditating or when you're having all these different kind of anomalous experiences and the more that you can kind of reach that flow state that barbara mentioned the more i feel like you get comfortable being in those weird states and it that really helps with my anxiety like when i start feeling weird and i'm not at the drawing table i'm like oh wait a second i know what's going on here i have a little bit more of a frame of reference for it if that yeah. makes sense yeah i'll tell you what we're coming up on an hour here do we want to go ahead and take a break and then uh maybe come back record for another 30 minutes or so that Whatever. sounds good to me yeah <laughs> uh. so todd you were talking about how you would doodle and draw in class that would help you focus right mm -hmm. i had kind of the opposite problem enough so that in college uh, i was taking a summer class and the professor had everyone stay in one room he went to a neighboring room and called people in one at a time and he said okay this is your final i'm going to ask you one question and everybody was getting questions about stuff that happened in class right the subject that we were working on. Well, I go in there, he looks over my notes and he looks over my grades and he says, okay, um, so I noticed that you don't take notes in class. Why is that? Well, if I have a pen and paper, I, I doodle and then I won't pay attention. <laughs> oh, so, okay. Well, that's uh that's a good answer. Uh, you pass, <laughs> but yeah, no, that's been a thing growing that's amazing. up. Like, like I I have to limit what I have available to to draw with because if I get too focused on that, I don't mm. pay attention to the lecture that's taking place. But Definitely. I also uh, I have number dyslexia mm. too. Yes. Yep. Yeah, I I was gonna say you two might be the first people in my adult life that I've met that have numeric dyslexia. It was like I didn't know anybody growing up who had it. Like I remember getting in trouble and them calling me into the uh, principal's office and they're like, "What's your dad's work phone number?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And they're like, "No, you're messing." <laughs> like I got in more trouble because they they swore that I was like not giving it to them so they wouldn't call them. I'm like, "No, literally, I don't know. I know like." I know patterns. I can like show you the pattern on the keys, yeah. but I can't tell you the numbers. Like if you show me the phone, I can dial it for you, but I can't tell you what the numbers are. And that's just how my brain has always worked. But yeah. Uh, one of the ways my parents got around that is they actually turned phone numbers into songs for us. <gasps> that's so smart. Yeah. <sighs> that's awesome. I would have never got, that would have been so helpful for me. <laughs> that's what do you think there's a connection as far as the uh what we started talking with about as far as these different mental health challenges and learning challenges like do you think the two are usually go hand in hand or from my experience i feel like they 
they support each other in my brain, in my weird brain. Like my anxiety kind of goes along with my spatial disorder and my dyslexia, if that makes sense. Like they all kind of seem to be a part of a big whole. And I don't, do you guys feel that at all? Like, do you feel a connection inside with them? I think it's more that it's trying to, like we were saying with society, it's trying to fit a round peg in a square hole. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That, that's what I think about with my, my math challenges, as it were. Yeah. <laughs> I know that it, it's really interesting. In fourth grade, they had us do partnership work. This is this is like a big deal at that time. Like mm-hmm. we had two two kids teaming up doing math. And the kid that was teamed with me, he watched me and he he said she does the math right, but the numbers are switched. Mm-hmm. When she copies the numbers, she puts the wrong numbers in. But if you look at the process yeah. of the math, she's doing it correctly with the wrong numbers. And that was the first person who figured out that there was something not right. And it was a, a fellow fourth grader. And then uh, nothing happened until I was a senior in high school when they went, oh, I think you have... It's called, you know, numeric dyslexia or dysnomia. And I'm like, what? that's what that kid in fourth grade said. I don't know what's wrong with y'all. <laughs> what took you so long? <laughs> yeah. Um, and then, you know, then people were like, oh, this is why you hate math. I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Because I know I'm doing something right, but I don't know what parts are right and what isn't. And just fuck all y'all. I don't like any of you. <laughs> No, I'm curious, Barbara, how are you with languages, like foreign languages? <laughs> I'm funny with them. That's what it is. I had <laughs> five years of Latin. I, I made straight A's. My fifth year, I was translating Ovid um, because there was only two of us that went to fifth year in high school. And <laughs> our, our Latin teacher was the only one in the county. And Mm. she had to have surgery and she was out for like four weeks. And so they sent a a, uh, substitute who could do her English classes and her Spanish classes, but could not do the Latin classes. There was just no way. And so she would, you know, pass out these worksheets to these first year students and they would just look at it and be like, I don't. So I, they had brand new textbooks, which I didn't really understand how they were teaching. And I'm like, okay, here you go. We're going to learn. We're going to learn it how I learned it. Here's, here's all the endings. We're going to learn them and we're going to learn them to a tune and it's going to be the way I learned it. And then, and then we'll, we'll start translating something that's easy. And when she came back, they had started translating Julius Caesar's commentaries on the Gallic Wars because he doesn't, he doesn't write like fancy. He doesn't mm-hmm. have pretty phrases yeah. and sh- stuff like that. He just is like, well, these barbarians smell bad and they're terrible and we're going to have to kill them this way. And, you know, or, you know, he'd, he'd finally get across the river and go crucify the lot of them. You know, I'm, <laughs> he just he really, it was, it was little, little 
notes from the front, as it were. So it was easy. And she was like, who taught them this? And I was like, oh, I did. And it's way easier than those new books you got. I don't know. Do you have to teach them from that? Because that, that they, it's just awful. And she's like, okay, that's, that's weird. But I also have taken French and um, German and Russian and Russian was the one I was the best at. I can sort of, I know Spanish, but when I try to speak it out comes French. I, I don't know why that is. But Russian was what I was good at, like really good. So yeah, I'm I'm fine with, with foreign languages. My husband is the exact opposite. He not only does math, he does not, or he not only does not do math, he does not do foreign languages either. He's really good at English though, and mm-hmm. really good at music and art. Yeah, that that's why I was asking is I have number dyslexia, but I'm also, I struggle with languages. Yeah, I try, but it's not something I, I have a talent for. Yeah. Same with music, too, now that I think about it. Yeah. Music and math go together, interestingly. So I've, I've told my husband for years that he probably is actually able to do math better than he thinks, but he disagrees with me. Math and music and that whole thing, I know, like, fundamentally they're very tied but practically when it comes to playing music you don't gotta fucking know numbers like you can like like when i'm playing like when i'm playing drums i'm not sitting there like one two three four one two three four whoops you know you just go you play and it just falls in time or like you know when we start songs like the most uh i count to four with the drumsticks but it's not usually even in the same tempo as the song it's just so that we all start at the same time good at reading music or anything or like like i've i was one of those kids that like as soon as guitar tabs came out i was like oh awesome i can learn everything and never have to learn music and like now there's apps where you can just hold the phone up to a song and it'll tell you the chords that to play and like tell you how to play the whole song it's really Mm -hmm. it's really ridiculous i didn't know that until this weekend yeah, I was in the studio this weekend, and my the dude, that, the engineer that we record with all the time, showed me. I was like, "Well, that broke my brain. I didn't know you could do that." <laughs> yeah, that's that's a new thing, and that's awesome. Yeah, no, it definitely is. But yeah, it's I, it's like a anything. Like I know math's at the base of it all, but I've never thought about it like that. Like if I did think about it like that, I probably would have never tried to pick up a guitar or drums or anything because yeah, I just I'm, have a yeah. knee jerk reaction, you know. But did you all ever get like, do you remember, and maybe it was different depending on like my experience age wise and whatnot, but did they ever try and explain to you like how dyslexia works and like why your brain does that? No, <laughs> no. Yeah. Yeah. No, me either. And I I tried learning later on and I just confused myself more and honestly never looked into it again. <laughs> <laughs> so to this day, I don't know why my brain does the things it does and I'm okay with that. <laughs> Yeah, it, it it doesn't make sense. I don't know. I remember my dad trying to teach me how to tie my shoes and how to read a clock um, because, you know, this is before digital class. Yep. I mean, seriously, I was born in the Stone Age, y'all. I, I <laughs> We didn't have digital clocks. Um, so I had to learn how to do it. And man, it it's something about, you know, the hours turning and, and I couldn't do it. And hmm. left and yeah. right tying shoes. 
much. That was terrible. The the final thing that, that caused my parents to realize that I had some sort of number dyslexia, and it happened years after this event happened. Barbara, you were you're from West Virginia, so you probably have seen these. The 84 lumber yep. businesses. Yeah. We have those in Delaware too. Oh yeah. Well, growing <laughs> up, I called them 48 lumber. Oh yeah. <laughs> So as a little kid, my parents were like, oh, that's so cute. You just can't read. And yeah, no, no. Turns out I was just reading it backwards. Yep. Mm. Yeah, that that's so funny. I would have never. There's a very distinct time where my uh, oldest has a articulation delay, I guess is technically what they call it. And there was a time that was very much like me and me and Allie, my, my wife, we were like, oh, isn't this adorable how he says this thing? And then like a day later, we we're like, maybe we should take him to the doctor. <laughs> and like, because there's that thing where like you kids just kind of start doing things on their own. And especially like Teddy was very slow to talk. And we were just like, oh, he didn't really crawl. He just went right to walk. And he's one of those kids. He'll just start talking out of nowhere and it'll just be like there. And then like he started talking and like would say things adorably. But like, you know, like I said, like very soon we went from, oh, that's adorable to, oh yeah, maybe we should uh, see what's going on here and try and help. But it's that, that there's a fine line when you're uh, working with youngins there. It's really weird. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to say to, to bring it kind of back to the paranormal in a, in a historical sense, one of the things that's interesting about the 19th century and about the world of the paranormal at that time, spiritualism was a huge thing and spiritualism started with a hoax um, it wasn't all completely a hoax, but the Fox sisters up in Hyde, New York, Hyde Park, New York, they, they, they figured out that they could make noises with their toe joints, which when I read that the first time I was like, that's some bullshit right there. How can your no your toe joint be that loud and that it, it fills an entire hall? Well, if you put it on a hollow a box, a wooden box. The wooden box acts mm. like a resonator. And so it can be loud. I discovered this, you know, mm. sitting on my couch, sticking my foot on the coffee table and, and, oh, wow, it could be really loud. So that was kind of interesting. So it started with a hoax, but it then spread and then weird phenomena followed it, right? There's all of this stuff. Some of it was hoaxes. Some of it was genuinely strange phenomena. And what was interesting is that spiritualism was mostly led by women. And so there were women who were speaking publicly because of spiritualism. And they started talking about equality. Because when you died in spiritualism, everyone was equal in spirit. It didn't matter if you were a man or a woman. It didn't matter what race you were. It mattered that everyone is equal in spirit. So then what happened is they started talking about women's rights for the living. And they started talking about abolition of slavery. And that was a big thing in the, in the Civil War. A lot of the people who were speaking about abolition 
were spiritualists. Yeah. Well, it was safe. Yeah. It wasn't the women talking about it. It was the dead. Yes, they were the mouthpieces for the dead, which, of course, my brain is going, yeah, sure. <laughs> they were just saying it because they could. And, you know, but that's to me, that is one of those things where in our world today, we couldn't kind of cope with that in our minds. It's kind of like people would really listen to that. So that's one of those spiritual and mental health was another thing that was talked about in by spiritualists. So fascinating. And at this point, apparently the spirits of the Fox sisters got all upset at Barbara and disconnected her. The rest of us talked amongst ourselves for a bit and then Barbara rejoined us. Hi, Barbara. Hey, you're back. Hey. Barbara, you were talking about the spiritualists and you got cut off. And <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, because they didn't like I was talking about the Fox sisters <laughs> doing some hoaxing and they got mad. We could switch to the Cottingly fairies. Huh? No, no, let, let's not talk about the fairies. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's a good one. To... <laughs> yeah, I haven't, I haven't given them their weekly snacks, so they'll probably be vengeful. Yeah, basically that the, the spiritualists became a voice of, of progressivism, and that is a thing that, the the paranormal world can kind of claim you know new agers also you know that's that again that's that uh mm -hmm. blavatsky thing you know because she's all over in that in many many ways they are extremely progressive um including with mental health and then and then there's some that aren't as progressive but i think it's interesting that spiritualists did have to do with good mental health treatment and they, they spoke out for that. And some of them were uh, volunteers at various mental health institutions to, to bring comfort and safety to the patients. So that's fascinating. I, I didn't know any of that. We're even seeing stuff like that today where, I can't remember who it is. There, she's written several books, and she's a psychiatrist, I believe. She is is interacting with people who have been diagnosed with schizophrenia, uh, multiple personality disorder, by interacting with the individual personalities and basically asking them, okay, what do you want? Why are you here? Why are you doing what you do? Yeah, And by interacting with them and fulfilling those individual desires, it sometimes helps them to dissipate and leave. Kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And I think you're right, Barbara, that there's such an opportunity for progressive thought and attitudes within these subjects and within these topics, because the if if this type of stuff doesn't promote openness then like what will i mean like i think that's such a big part of these things and what mm -hmm. can be uh kind of practical and beneficial whether it's the occult or paranormal or any of these things one of my favorite themes throughout like talking to weirdos like you all is this idea that we are 
consciousness connects us all that there's something a lot bigger going on and that we are a big part mm -hmm. of a tapestry that we're all affecting each other in certain ways and i think the paranormal is a really interesting way to kind of find yourself to that connection point that you know at the end of the day i think we're all working towards discovering that we're connected to everybody whether you do it through sometimes it's that dark night of the soul whether it's addiction or like some of the different experiences we've talked about on the the show here but we those big uh kind of traumatic experiences when integrated right seem to lead to this openness and this openness to connection that really brings us all together and sometimes you can find that through just you know stories of historical weirdness like you just shared and i think that's really what one of the more practical uses of all this stuff well i feel like that's a pretty good place to end right there <laughs> yeah todd's really really good at like summing the thing up and and boom Drop the mic. Walk away. We're done. Well, that's too kind of you. <laughs> Jason, thank you for doing this, though. This was like, I'm really excited we got to all hang out and talk about this. And yeah, thank you for yeah, having absolutely. us and, and yeah. hosting and putting this all together. I I, uh, I know I tried to at first and dropped the ball, and I'm really glad you picked it up because this was uh, something that I think is really special. Yeah, yeah. And I, I want to be able to do these more frequently, too. Yeah, it worked out really, really well. Yeah. Even if we don't record, it would be nice just to to get together and talk. Absolutely. That would be fun. I mean, it's, it's very different than talking on our phones all the time. <laughs> Again, that, that, that paradox where, yeah, the phone is this like source of attention sucking. I don't want to say it's like, you know, stealing my soul half the time, but that's what it feels like. But the other part of it is it is this giant release for social stuff like most of the time i'm talking to my six-year-old or my two-year-old or i'm talking to Allie, which is wonderful but she doesn't want to hear about any of this stuff half the time anymore so like going to those group conversations and those group chats really is meaningful to me so for all the the ills that social yeah. media has brought it also brought this community together and allows these conversations to have so it's like anything else it's not all bad it's not all good it's right in the middle yeah. somewhere how it's used how it's applied yeah yeah. Yep, exactly. Well, before we get out of here, how can people find each of you? Let's start with Todd. Uh, you can find me at createmagicstudios.com. I have a podcast called a Create Magic Podcast where it used to be a daily art podcast and now it is just an interview podcast because I got burned out on doing a daily podcast after 400 and some episodes. <laughs> Maybe I'll do it again at some point. But uh, you can follow me on Instagram at ToddDE85. And yeah, the createmagicstudios.com is probably the easiest place to find all the artwork and everything. Dazos? I am Dasos underscore Crowsong on Instagram and um, Reset20 Studios uh, on Etsy is where you can find whatever stuff actually makes it to market. And Barbara. Okay, so I am Barbara Fisher 8972 because it's a common as hell name on Instagram. And I am also on Instagram as Six Degrees of John Keel. And I'm also Six Degrees of John Keel.com. So those are, those are the places you can find me. And I am Jason. You can find me on Facebook, Patreon, uh, Instagram, and now on threads at Esoteric Book Club. 
So thanks for everyone joining us tonight. And I don't know. I don't really have a closing for this. Uh, anyone got a catchphrase <laughs> to throw out there? Stay weird. There, you there go. we go. I like it. Good night, Bye. everybody. Bye.